How are you? Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Will Duvall. I'm the associate pastor here. And um, so blessed that you uh, uh, braved the negative whatever degree temperatures it is out there to be with us this morning. We pray that you'll be blessed for it. Um, we're certainly blessed by your presence. I'm blessed to be sharing uh, from my heart and God's word with you this morning. Hope everyone had a Merry Christmas, and uh, if you didn't, at least it's over now, uh, and you survived it, and so uh, if we can just push through this new year, life will be returning to normal here soon, right? You've got to love the break and the extended family time and all the food and the presents, but it's kind of nice to have your routine and your personal space and your waistline back, so um, be looking forward to, to life as usual returning. Uh, this morning, we are going to wrap up our five-part uh, Christmas series on why Jesus came. And uh, when Pastor Gary originally selected these uh, five texts, this last one was sort of the outlier. Um, doesn't really fit with our whole Advent theme of Jesus's coming, for starters, because it's not Advent anymore. Now we're, we're post-Christmas in the church calendar. But Secondly, because uh, this passage isn't explicitly about Jesus' coming either. I mean, he's already here. Um, he's already here. And in fact, this passage is totally unique in the New Testament Gospels because it's actually the only story we have of Jesus as an adolescent. We get to hear this morning about pre-teenage Jesus as a 12-year-old in the temple. And so Kids, the kids are in the service with us this morning. Where are the kids at? Would you raise your hands or stand on your chairs or something so we can recognize you? The kids are here. We're happy to have them with us. Um, this sermon, kids, is going to be as much, maybe even more so for y'all as it is for your parents, right? Because some of y'all aren't 12 yet. And so you've got an opportunity this morning to learn from Jesus' example and from my mistakes, our mistakes as adults, and hopefully not have to make some of them yourself. Uh, and so pay attention this morning, kids. If you don't pay attention to my words, pay attention to God's word, all right? Read this passage, reread it, study the picture of Jesus that Luke is going to paint for us as a 12-year-old. This is the kind of 12-year-old you want to become. This passage gives us a glimpse, a small but a crucial peek into the kind of person that Jesus is already becoming. And so actually in that sense, this passage kind of does fit with our series theme, because we could phrase the gospel in this way. Jesus came to earth to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve to reconcile us to God. And so this morning we get the first glimpse into that kind of life that you and I should live, but don't. We're going to see Jesus, even as an adolescent, living the kind of life that I know I certainly didn't live then, and to be honest, I don't even still live today, and I wager to dare to wager that you don't either. We get a sneak preview here of Jesus' exemplary character, the kind of person that Jesus is. And one way of putting that is to say Jesus is the kind of person that I'm not. Jesus is the anti-me in such a God-glorifying way. He's certainly not the kind of person that I've been in my past. That's always one of the most fun parts about being together with extended family over the holidays, isn't it? Is that you get to be reminded of all those stories of 12-year-old you that you'd rather forget, but they can't seem to let die. In fact, I uh, asked just for fun this morning, I asked my mom to dig out a picture of 12-year-old me. Look out, ladies. You don't know what's coming. So many things that I wish I could tell young Will there. For starters, maybe lose that top button and let your one chest hair breathe a little bit. 
wish you could go back in time, don't you? And, and, and tell your 12-year-old self. So we'll have a little fun this morning. I'll try and mix in some of my own past for you. Uh, not because there's anything special about it, but to try and give you a contrast between who I was and who I still am and who Jesus was and is for our sake. And so I, I want to expose that contrast and I want to invite you to do the same with your own lives this morning. Read yourself into this story. Read yourself in. I'm not going to ask you to share your seventh grade yearbook photos, although we could have a lot of fun with that, I'm sure. But we're going to examine each of these six character traits that Jesus embodies here as a young boy. And I, I encourage you to examine yourself as we do that. Your past, your present, your future, all the ways that Jesus is the anti-you as well in such a God-glorifying way. And as you do, I invite you to consider two things this morning. First of all, how does God want to use that recognition of, of the, the contrast between you and Jesus? How does he want to use that to challenge you and to grow you in your own Christ-likeness and devotion in this new year? But secondly, even when you fall short of that, because you will, even when you fall short in this new year, of the spiritual resolutions you set for yourself, how does God want to use this passage this morning to reassure you and to humble you in awe and praise of the one who would live this kind of life for your sake, the kind of life you couldn't so that he could trade his righteousness for your unrighteousness on the cross. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. So would you stand with me as you're able um, for the reading of God's word this morning? I'm going I'm to read it out loud for us. If you just read along silently with me from Luke 2, verses 41 through 52. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. So he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need and want to increase in our own wisdom and stature and in favor with you and others this morning. And so we know the only way, Father, that we can do that is by submitting ourselves to your word and your guidance your sanctification, Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would come now, open our eyes, minds, and hearts, and make us able to hear, receive the word that you have for us, and transform our hearts more into the image of your Son. And we'll give you the glory this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. 
All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. The first characteristic we observe about Jesus in this passage is that Jesus, in contrast to me and you, Jesus is independent. In verse 43, we hear the feast ends and Jesus just decides to hang out in Jerusalem for a couple days by himself. He survives on his own in Jerusalem at Passover for three entire days. Now, kids that are in the service with us, forget about three days. Let's just talk about one night. How many of y'all would like to be in New York City tonight in the middle of Times Square by yourself for the entire night? You think that would be really fun? You, you would think it was fun probably for all of about two minutes, and then you'd be completely overwhelmed and, and pee your pants, right? Because that, that would be overwhelming and crazy for you. And, and yet that is what Jesus does here. That's Jerusalem at Passover. When I was 12, I don't know about you, but I couldn't do my own laundry. And here's Jesus basically proving he can pretty much do life on his own at this point. But there's an even deeper sense of independence that Jesus models for us in this passage that goes beyond the merely practical. If we look ahead at verses 48 and 49, Jesus responds to Mary's concern over her not knowing where to find him by saying, why were you looking for me? And he doesn't say it disrespectfully like, ugh, stupid mom. No, because even teenage Jesus never disrespected his parents and he never sinned. Talk about a miracle, right? No, I think he says it more like, it's okay, mom. You know, you, you didn't need to worry about me because I don't, I don't need you guys anymore. Not, not in the same way that I need God. I needed to be here in my father's house. And so there's this concept in uh, social psychology called self-determination theory that considers the extent to which a person's behavior is intrinsically versus extrinsically motivated. In other words, does the motivation for your behavior, for your actions and decisions, does it come from within you or does it come from some external pressure without you, be it peer pressure, kids, be it the pressure to win your parents' approval or affection, is it maybe adults, the, the desire to impress your colleagues um, or a p- potential mate or your spouse? And so I think back to 12-year-old me now and, and virtually all of my actions and my motives at that time were actually reactions to external circumstances in particular, my parents' divorce at the time, whether I was publicly achieving to try and make them sorry for giving up on a perfect child like me, or whether I was privately sinning to try and get back at God for hurting me so much. All of my actions, my motives were exclusively extrinsic. I wasn't self-determined at all. There was no independence. I was utterly dependent on others to tell me who I was and what I was worth and how I should act. And so I ask you this morning, friends, What about you today? How much do you need others? And sure, God designs us for relationships and for dependency, at the very least, dependency on him. And we're not made to be completely autonomous, and yet we still have to ask ourselves, how much of who I am is bound up in who someone else is and in who they say that I am, who they tell me I am? Does our need for God put all these other horizontal needs and dependencies and proper perspective. Secondly, Jesus is engaged. Verse 46, we hear, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, it's ironic that the kids would be in here on the last Sunday of the month with us. Kids, 
let me talk to you again for a second. How many of y'all still now here 10 minutes into the sermon, you're still paying attention? Right? I said pay attention. We're only 10 minutes in. How many of y'all in, in the temple with the adults this morning sitting under this teaching, how many of y'all are still paying attention? Do you, kids, do you desire to grow in your Christ-likeness like young Jesus did here? Do you desire to increase in wisdom and in stature and favor with God? Are you turning to your parents when you don't understand a word I've used and asking them questions like Jesus did with his teachers? Are you doing that? Not just the kids. How about you, parents, adults? Are, are, are you with me? Are you tracking? Are, are you engaged? Are you rigorously marking up your Bibles and your notebooks? Are you listening and learning and itching to ask me your questions or, uh, when the sermon's over? In a more general sense, are we present? Are we present today, friends, of all the wonderful qualities that stand out to me about Jesus when I encounter him in the Gospels. Perhaps the biggest one that jumps off the page to me is how incredibly present Jesus was in all of his interactions. When he's speaking to someone, you just get the impression that, that Jesus made them feel like they were the only person in the world that mattered at that moment, don't you? When Jesus is praying, I can't imagine Jesus' mind wandering while he's praying. He's just completely present. And here, even as a 12-year-old in the temple, amongst the adults in conversation, he's completely tuned in. All the other 12-year-olds, they probably struggled to stay engaged during the duration of the eight-day Passover observance. Some of our kids struggle for a 45-minute service, last service of the month. Eight days of Passover as the 12-year-olds back then. And now it's over. They can finally return to the playground and be a kid again, right? They pull their iPhones back out, and they're, they're playing their games, and they're Snapchatting. And here's Jesus on day 9 and day 10 and day 11. He's riveted in discussion, eagerly longing to learn from the scriptures that he himself had co-authored before time began. And I don't know about you, but when I was 12, I was so disengaged that my mom finally gave up on me and we agreed that if I was in the middle of watching TV and it was something really important and she really needed me to pay attention like actually expected me to remember this conversation and listen and obey her she was going to have to ask me to turn off the TV first because I couldn't be expected to possibly you know take a break I was so disengaged I was distracted I was tuned out and what about us today Today, it's not the TV. Right? It's, our, it's our phones that I already referenced, which is just a TV that follows you around everywhere and has internet access too. So it's even worse. But it's not just the kids either, is it? Parents, adults. How present are you with your family, with your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers? Are you notice someone who's radically present and engaged? Like, man, when she's talking to you, you feel like you're the only person in the world. Do we make people feel that way like Jesus did? Do you ask them questions? Here's Jesus, God incarnate, the, the person who had every excuse to sit around and just give answers all day long. He was the greatest question asker of all time. Jesus asked 173 questions in only 89 chapters of the four gospels. Virtually every time he opens his mouth, he's asking a question. Why? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Do you want to be well? Have you no faith? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Who do you say that I am? Judas, will you betray me with a kiss? 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Why does he ask all these questions? Even his first words in recorded history here in verse 49, as a 12-year-old, it's a question. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that? Jesus asked so many questions because questions are engaging. They're an invitation. They draw the other in. To ask a question and to actually care about the answer is an act of hospitality. And particularly when the answer concerns a deeper spiritual matter here, like it does in verse 46 with Jesus questioning his teachers, it's an act of worship too. Questioning is an act of worship when we desire to increase in our own wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so friends, I ask you again this morning, are we engaged? Are we present? Are we hospitable and worshipful? These are spiritual resolutions for us to consider for the new year. Thirdly, Jesus is wise. Verse 47. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Do you know the number one reason that Christians give for not sharing the gospel? What do you think it is? Audience participation. Exactly. They are afraid, I'm afraid, that they're going to start asking me questions that I don't know the answers to. It's the number one reason that Christians give for not evangelizing. And how do we pastors typically respond to that? Typically we say, that's all right, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And I don't want you to mishear me. God can absolutely intervene and supernaturally give you the words you need in that kind of conversation. And we we need to absolutely lean on him in prayer when those opportunities arise to share the gospel. But without digressing into whole exegesis of Luke 12 and 21 and Matthew 10, those passages where Jesus makes that promise to his disciples. Let me just say that I think we've taken his words out of context a bit here. And he's not primarily, originally intending to make that promise in these everyday evangelism and apologetic contexts. And, and I think that perhaps the better response that we as pastors should give, you know, if, if we hear that reason, that, that I'm afraid that they're going to ask questions that I won't know the answers to is, is frankly to say, well, then get ready. Find the answers. First Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's within you. That wonderful phone that I just got done condemning, pull it out. Every answer to every question you could ever want to know, you can, it's a click away, it's a Google away. It's a text away. I'll give you my cell phone number. I, I, Gary will, Pastor Gary will give you his cell phone number. Text us. If we, if we don't know the answer, we'll find it for you in Scripture. We will help you find it. All right, but let's don't let that in this new year be an excuse for us to not share the gospel with people who desperately need to hear it. Let's just call it what it is. That's what it is. It's an excuse, and it's a, it's a pretty weak one at that because the answers are a click away. And we Christians, we ought to be people who amaze the world with our understanding, with our answers, like Jesus does here. We can't shy away from conversations that might require us to know a thing or two about complex intellectual subject matters. All truth is God's truth, after all, isn't it? I mean, there is nothing that's true in science and philosophy, cosmology, art, math, any realm of life. There's nothing that is true, that's not God's truth, that should make us nervous as believers. Because these other disciplines, they're merely discovering the truths about God's universe that he has already set in place and been revealing to us for thousands of years now. 
And Jesus didn't get nervous about the kinds of questions he might get asked by his skeptics, and he got plenty of them. He viewed them as opportunities. Even as a 12-year-old here, he turns a question into an opportunity to amaze them with his understanding and to draw people closer to God. And so you say, that's great, but he was Jesus, right? Yeah, but verse 52 makes it clear to us that even Jesus is still learning. Even 12-year-old Jesus, he's still increasing in his wisdom. He didn't have an iPhone to help him do it either. In, in some ways, we have it easier than, than, than he did, maybe. And so you and I, are we increasing in our wisdom? Are, do we view these, these conversations as opportunities to not only lead others to God, but to, to deepen our own relationship with them as we draw closer and come to understand our Heavenly Father more deeply? And I'm so passionate about this particular one, friends, because when I was 12, I was starting to ask those questions, those serious questions of God. I don't know about you and where you were at in your faith then, but that's where I was. I was asking, why is God letting this happen to my family? Where is God when I'm hurting? Why should I trust in this book anyways, written thousands of years ago by God only knows who, right? Look at all the contradictions in it. And do you know the answer that I got back from the church? Who are you to question God? Friends, we've got to do better than that. Jesus offers real answers here, not empty, threatening, unhelpful rhetorical questions back. He offers answers. We should be ready to as well when we get asked questions. Proverbs 4 says, get wisdom and whatever else you get, get understanding. Proverbs 16 says, how much better to get wisdom than gold. To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Do we treasure wisdom and understanding, knowledge of God above gold and silver, above our unstructured free time? Because let's face it, we've got the time. We, we make time for all sorts of other lesser pursuits and endeavors. We can make the time to pursue wisdom, to grow in our knowledge of God through his word. And so will you ask God this morning along with me to give you a burning passion in this new year to grow in his wisdom and knowledge, relationship with him. Fourth, Jesus was devoted. Verse 49 says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus had his priorities straight, even as a 12-year-old. I was thinking about it this last week and really just kind of mourning uh, how much time I've spent, not just hours and days and even weeks I'm talking, but months, entire years that I've spent now cumulatively over the course of my life that I have wasted, that I've thrown away after worthless pursuits. I'm not talking about the 10 plus years I've spent now uh, sleeping at this point or the three plus months now I've spent bathing. I consider that time well spent. I'm talking about the two or three, maybe four years that I've spent watching TV. I mean, the year plus that I've spent surfing the internet and I'm not talking about looking up God's answers to life's greatest questions. I'm talking about the six plus months I've probably spent playing video games. I'm starting to calculate this. Kids, learn from my mistakes this, this, this morning. Talk to your parents. Learn from their mistakes this morning. Right? Don't make the same mistakes. And it was worse when I was 12, but even today, my priorities still aren't straight. But I ask you to consider in your own life, how are your own priorities? How and how much time have you spent? Do you still spend today 
in frivolous endeavors. And we contrast that with the young Jesus that we meet here in the temple who is so singularly focused, so tunnel vision, so obsessed with the things of God that he almost sounds offended that Mary wouldn't have known that he had to be in his father's house. He's like, Mom, don't you know me at all? Like, we traveled 80 miles to get here. We're not going to be back for a whole other year. You're going to have to drag me out of the temple. This is my father's house. I have to be with him spending time. How about us? Is church one of the highlights of your week? I hope it is. It is for me. I love being here, worshiping with you guys every week. I feel like I missed out when I'm not here. I hope that's true of you too. And I can say that, and I taught the two and three-year-old class every week for the last month. So you know that's saying something when I say that I want to be here, right? Is your quiet time with the Lord each morning, is it a highlight of your day? And here's where I want to come back to that second purpose for the sermon. It's not only to challenge us to grow in our devotion and Christ-likeness this, this, this coming year, but also to realize that we're going to fall short, guys. I don't ask these questions in a spirit of condemnation. I'm not up here waving my Bible at you and pounding the pulpit and saying, be more like Jesus. Why don't you love God more? Because on a really practical level, I know that doesn't work for me. That, that does not motivate my obedience to him. That doesn't, that doesn't tug at my heart and make me want to, to, to be more devoted to him. Instead, I think this is where we've simply got to pause and say this morning, thank God that Jesus shows the Father the kind of devotion and faithfulness and love that I never could, that I don't. Thank God that my standing and my relationship with the Father is not based on my own merit or abilities or devotion or faithfulness to him. Because would anybody else in here be as honest as me to say, if I was truly reading myself into this passage this morning, I would have to rewrite it and say, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that at the end of a long day, I had to be vegging out in front of Netflix? Like that, that's what it would say most of the time for me. Because I don't burn with passion to spend more time with God often. I, I, I want to, and I want to increase in my desire, my love for him, and my need for him, my dependency on the Father in this new year. I mean, that's my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for y'all in 2018, that by this time next year, we could be back here and we could be saying, man, we're in a different place. And, and, and I can say along with Jesus, I just need to spend time with God today, or my entire world is going to be out of whack, that we'd be that utterly dependent on him. But brothers and sisters, we need to know this morning that if you never achieve that level of devotion and dependency on God, that quality of relationship with him, the promise that we have in the person of Jesus is that God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when God looks at you this morning, if you have trusted Christ for your salvation, he doesn't see you as uncommitted, undevoted, faithless, you know, lazy. He doesn't see you that way. He sees you as clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the devotion, the faithfulness, the goodness of Christ. Amen? Fifth, Jesus is submissive. We hear in verse 51 that he went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Now, 
to understand just how profound this fifth point is, we've got to understand an important detail I kind of skipped over in verse 49. So in the first words we ever hear Jesus speak in all of Scripture, he does something that no one else in all of Scripture and perhaps in all of human history has ever done. Jesus calls God my Father. He says, I had to be in my Father's house. In the Old Testament, we only ever hear people refer to God as our Father. Other emperors and rulers in history we know refer to themselves as sons of God, but it's unclear if they ever went so far as to personally address God himself as my Father. But right off the bat here, that's what Jesus does. He says, my Father, and he claims this totally new, unique relationship with the God of the universe that is revolutionary. That's why no one in verse 50, when they hear him say it, can understand it. They don't even have a category for the type of person who would address God in this way, with this kind of intimacy and and personalness. And so the immediately, immediately after that, upon publicly revealing for the first time his true identity as the son of God and dropping this bombshell, the next thing we hear is, In verse 51, he followed his parents and submitted to them. Can you imagine being Mary and Joseph? Let's just stop for a minute and put yourself in their place. That that would, you gotta feel for Mary and Joseph, don't you? I mean, talk about a hard job. Hey, you're gonna parent God. Good luck, right? I mean, you would almost rather have like a demon child because then at least you feel useful, you know? Like, what are you gonna tell God? How how are you gonna raise him? Can you imagine getting to that age as Jesus when you realize that your parents are sinners and you're not? Like, how awkward. How do you broach that conversation in a respectful way? But to be Mary and Joseph, at, the, at Culver, the boarding school that I taught at before we moved here, my very first year ever coaching basketball, I got to be an assistant coach on a team that ended up making it all the way to the state championship game. This is in Indiana, basketball mecca, Right? Um, I coached three Division I college athletes. We ended up losing to a team that had two guys that went on to play in the NBA. And here I am, a rookie coach who quit my high school team because I didn't get enough playing time. All right, so I, I'm feeling, talking about feeling out of your league, right? I, I like wanted to ask these guys, could y'all stick around after practice and give me a few pointers? Right, that's, that's how Mary and Joseph had to feel here, right? They're out of their league. And yet... Luke tells us Jesus was submissive to them. He deferred to their God-given parental authority over him as imperfect and human as it was. He humbled himself and allowed himself to be instructed by them. Can you just see 12-year-old Jesus returning back to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph and working alongside his father in the carpenter's shop knowing full well that he could snap his fingers and make a table appear out of thin air, right? But he humbled himself and let Joseph teach him how to use a saw and sandpaper. That's a beautiful picture of of humility and of submission. And I don't know about you, but when I was 12, I wouldn't let my parents or anyone else for that matter, teach me jack squat about anything, right? I I knew everything I needed to know, thank you very much. And if I didn't, I sure as heck wasn't gonna let you know that I didn't know it and I could find it out for myself, thank you very much. I remember getting sent to the principal's office once when I was 12 
because I laughed at my middle school uh, music teacher um, who had her PhD in music theory when she introduced herself to us as Dr. Grant, and I had to correct her and tell her that she wasn't a real doctor. Like, you don't really have anything to teach me. I, I can't really learn anything from you. And I'll never forget her response. She said, you know, Will, you're going to grow up one day and you're going to work with young people and they're going to pay you back tenfold for how you disrespect <laughs> your teachers. And I laughed at her then, but after over a decade of doing youth ministry, I can tell you, I think about her prophetic curse every Wednesday night <laughs> for the last 12 years. If you were searching for one adjective that best described this generation of 12-year-olds, you probably wouldn't land on submissive, would you? But what about us adults? What about you, parents? It's easy to point fingers and, and whine and complain. Back in my day, we respected our elders. But, but how, how about you? I mean, how are you at submitting to those in positions of authority over you? You never break the speed limit. You never complain about your boss behind his back. You never gripe about your elected officials. Remember, Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. First Peter, sorry, First Timothy 2 tells us to pray for those in positions of authority over. Is that, is that you? You never complain. You always just pray for them. You're more holy than I am, if that's you. I mean, these are pretty incriminating words for us, for all of us. And yet, the one person in all of human history who had every right to disregard all other human authorities and institutions and do whatever he pleased, Jesus, he willingly chose the path of submission. And no wonder we hear that Mary treasured up these things in her heart. What kind of boy? is this, who would be this wise and this independent and this devoted to God and yet this submissive to me, a fallen, sinful person like me? And most importantly, Jesus' submission here to his earthly mother and father is, of course, a foreshadowing of an even greater submission, his submission to his heavenly father, to go to the cross to save fallen, unworthy, sinful people like you and me. He didn't have to do it. And at least a part of him didn't want to do it. You remember that scene in, in the garden, right? Remove this cup from me. And yet, not my will, but your will be done, Father. As Paul puts it in Philippians 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What kind of God would do such a thing for you and me? The least we can do in return, all we can do in return, is to submit ourselves back to him and to one another out of reverence for him. There are far too many passages here in the New Testament to consider, but the idea in all of these, James 4, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 5, 1 Peter 2, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter uh, yeah, 5, 6 again, all of them is submit, submit, submit. Submit to your elders, submit to one another, submit to God, submit to your leaders. Friends, are we known as people of radical submission to Christ first and to others second out of reverence for him and as an example to them. 
And do we regularly thank Jesus, thank Jesus for demonstrating the kind of submission on our behalf that we should but don't, that we fail to. Lastly, point number six, Jesus is increasing. I know that that wording sounds awkward, but as I was rereading verse 52, I couldn't think of a better way to say it myself, and so we'll leave it with Jesus is increasing. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He's, he's growing, he's learning, developing, maturing, which seems weird for an omnipotent, omniscient God, doesn't it? But in that same passage from Philippians 2 that I just referenced, Paul also tells us that Jesus, when he humbled himself and took on flesh, he voluntarily foregoes the exercise of some of his divine attributes. He empties himself, being born as a servant in the likeness of men. And yet, even as a man, even as a young boy, Jesus is always looking for ways to grow, to increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor. And so I ask you this morning, I'll leave you this morning with that personal open-ended question that you see at the bottom of your bulletin there. I encourage you to take that and ask yourself these questions this week. Ask them today. How do you want to grow? More importantly, how does God desire to see you grow in 2018? Personally, I, I love New Year's. I don't know about you. I love it. I love the idea of a fresh start, even if it's a bit contrived. Uh, we, we joke about them, but I love making New Year's resolutions as well. And friends, whether you lose those 15 pounds this morning, like they were talking about on the video, whether you, whether you finally finish that book that's been on your bedside table since 2003, um, why not consider this morning some spiritual resolutions? some eternal type resolutions and pray and ask God, Father, how do you desire to see me increase in wisdom and stature and in favor in this new year? We want to support you in that as a church. That's why we're here, West Hills. We'll keep doing our thing every Sunday. Um, we, we, we just told you during the announcements, we have uh, one or two um, new uh, Sunday school classes uh, starting up, not to mention the, the whole kids Sunday school hour that we're going to be launching here next week uh, that I promise kids it's going to rock your world. You're not going to want to miss it. You want to wake your parents up, get them out of bed and drag them to church at nine o'clock in this new year. We've got opportunities for adult midweek Bible studies. We've got life groups. This is a great time to jump into a life group in a new year. If you're not in the life group and plug in, we've got even a couple new ones starting up. We've got all sorts of excuses for you to grow in your faith in this new year. And we want to help you do that. That's why we exist. We love it. But how is God calling you personally? I'll leave it with that and let the Holy Spirit speak to you personally this morning to grow don't be in such a rush this afternoon to, to plan for your New Year's Eve parties that you forget and fail to spend time with God, praying that over. Take these bulletins home. Discuss it as a family. Share your spiritual resolutions with one another. Hold one another accountable. Share them. Do it as a life group. And when you inevitably fall short and fail to live up to them, remind one another, encourage one another, of the one who lived the life that you and I couldn't so he could pay the debt that you and I owed but couldn't pay 
so that you and I might have new life in this new year. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just want to give a moment now uh, for us to personally, privately consider the ways that you might be speaking to our hearts this morning through your word and asking us to grow and increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor this morning and in this new year. Father, would you, through your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us and just tug at our hearts, encourage us to maybe even write something down right now things that you're bringing to our minds and our hearts that you desire for us, New Year's spiritual resolutions that you would love to see be a part of our new lives and routines in 2018. Father, we do thank you this morning for Jesus. God, we thank you that our standing with you, our relationship with you, it's not based on our own merit, our own devotion and faithfulness, our own ability to live up to any resolutions we set for ourselves, even if they come from you. It's not based on that but based solely on the kind of devotion, faithfulness, and love that he showed you that we couldn't. Father, we're humbled by the picture of Jesus that we get in the passage this morning, that even as a 12-year-old, he gives you the kind of love and devotion that we should but don't. We're humbled and convicted. We're challenged. We want to be more committed, more devoted, more faithful, more in love with you. Would you draw us to yourself this morning and in this new year? And we'll give you the honor and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. In a moment, the ushers are going to come forward and pass out the elements. We encourage you if you are, and invite you, if you are a believer this morning, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to um, join us in the table and taking the elements this morning as you're reminded of the one who lived the kind of life and died the kind of death that you and I should have, but don't. On the night that he was to be betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. It's my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup, and he poured it out, said, take, drink, 
This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for the sins of many. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me.